Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello there, history friends, and welcome to the teaser episode for the extra feed for the month of July. How's everyone doing? I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're enjoying this respite you've been having from when diplomacy fails, and that maybe, hey, you're catching up on the Five Weeks to Run Wild project. Hope you guys have not been too overwhelmed by all of that, and I hope that you're still with us after that extreme period of podcasting. But hey, if you want a little bit extra in your life, If you want a little bit more from When Diplomacy Fails, then the Extra Feed is the best place for you to go. What is the Extra Feed? Well, if you didn't know, somehow, When Diplomacy Fails is on Patreon, and from $5 a month, you guys can avail of at least an hour of extra content every month. That is to say, normally there would only be an hour of extra content, but in summer we're doing something special. You see, we're doing basically an episode every week as you would get in the normal feed, and we're not getting anything in the normal feed because, well, I think the normal feed needs a break, and the normal listeners who are used to normal release schedules are probably still recovering and gathering all their marbles after I scattered them to the winds in the Five Weeks to Run Wild project. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is if you guys would like to listen to some extra stuff, then go and check the extra feed out. WDF Podcast, click on the Patreon banner or patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. But what's going on in the extra feed right now, you might be wondering. Well, we are doing this thing called Louis XIV's Arms and Armies. And if you knew me, well, if you know me, if you knew me from years ago, you'd be very surprised to see that I'm taking on this kind of project because it's essentially a 10-part miniseries with the 10th part being released in September. But with the nine parts at least that you're going to get anyway, or the ten parts altogether. What am I talking about? Numbers. Anyway, the the long and short of it is, I look at equipment, I look at technology, I look at the drill, I look at the navy, for crying out loud. I look at the navy. This is the same guy who couldn't tell you the size of a dreadnought, and I still can't. But anyway, with Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, I wanted to bring you guys a different look, a different kind of in-depth perspective on what it was actually like to be in the armies of Louis XIV, during the 17th century. And obviously it's all finished now because it's releasing itself automatically into the extra feed. Sorry to break the fourth wall, but yeah, I really enjoyed doing it. And I hope that if something like that, if the the likes of technology or the drill or finding out what armies actually fought like, how they supplied themselves, all that kind of interesting additional stuff, 
all that extra stuff. See, the name makes sense now, doesn't it? If you'd like to check all that out, please do check out patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. It really is the best way to support this podcast, guys. It really, really is. And you'll be happy to know I have some plans in September, which you should all be very excited about. To do with Patreon, yes, but you'll see. All listeners will be able to enjoy what I have in store. As usual, I'm keeping it under wraps for another month or so, but soon all will be revealed, and you will have good, good cause to be excited. So as is our norm for these teaser episodes, we actually do release a teaser, but because there's five episodes in the month of July, and because you guys are wonderful... I decided to release five little teasers within this, so basically you'll get a tiny little flavour for each individual episode, and I'll do my best to properly kind of introduce you to what you're about to hear. So so first of all, to start us off, this is the first episode of Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, and this snippet here is going to give you a brief setting of the scene of the era as we establish how France was under threat, and how violence seemed to be everywhere, and how the kind of history of being under threat, especially from the Habsburgs, made Louis XIV act in the way that he did and pursue the kind of French foreign policy that he did. So have a listen here, see what you think, and remember there's four more little teasers on the way. forgotten fact about Louis XIV's reign is just how much he turned the situation of France around. It's easy for us to look back on Louis now and judge him for the wars he launched, three major ones and two minor ones, but we must bear in mind at the same time what kind of world Louis grew up in, and perhaps more critically, what kind of France he ruled once his reign officially began on the 7th of June 1654. Louis was born and grew up in a world where France was in a constant state of war, a fact which seems incredible to us and immensely difficult to imagine, but which must have contributed at least in some way to a kind of siege mentality that Louis seems to have adopted in his early years as King of France. It was by no means a guaranteed process that France would emerge from the Franco-Spanish War in 1659 as supreme, even considering the considerable Spanish weaknesses. It's easy to forget that France looked very different in the 1650s compared to modern-day France, and you may be surprised to denote just how surrounded on the map France appeared to be by either independent duchies or ancestral lands owned by Spain. The act of surrounding France with minor possessions and inheritances had been a recognised Habsburg policy in centuries past, and as a policy it is understandable when we consider the fact that both powers were in a constant state of war, which flipped from hot to cold depending on the circumstances of the era. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed that. Episode 2, which you're about to hear a snippet of, that looked into how the composition of armies changed. If you weren't aware, armies in the 17th century, well, at the beginning of the 17th century at least, they started out very much based on mercenaries. There wasn't as much of an emphasis on the state-managed, state-funded armies that we kind of 
come to accept as time goes on. This is mostly because the countries in question could not afford them. But there's real stark contrasts between the armies at the beginning, even the armies underneath Louis XIII and the armies underneath Louis XIV. It makes for incredible kind of listening and I really feel like you guys will be interested in the kind of the changes that took place over the years and it forms an especially interesting part of our story because Louis XIV is literally at the forefront of these changes as they occur. So have a listen to this snippet. We talk about the structures of armies, how they got their training, their rations and their weapons and everything else. And hey, maybe if it sounds interesting, you'll check out the full episode. So here you go. Thanks in part to the questionable loyalties of mercenary bands or soldiers for hire which constituted most of the soldiery in the employ of France by the 1630s, the countryside was largely at their mercy in the event that pay was not forthcoming, or if they were left idle for too long. Keeping mercenaries motivated by any cause other than the quest for coin and plunder was difficult when these resources were hard to come by. And with the challenges to economics and the French economy in particular in the beginning of its foray into the Thirty Years' War, Louis XIII took the bold step of refusing to hire the available mercenary bands from across the country in 1635 for fear of the damage they might inflict on towns far from their own homes. Louis XIII's stand against the expected norms, which would have garnered him a large army in short time, was not resolute as he did make exceptions. Those with a good memory will recall that Bernard of Saxe-Weimar was running around in the French employ for much of the early part of France's involvement in the Thirty Years' War, while those French garrison commanders near or within enemy territory often took to independently hiring mercenaries of their own to bolster their own defences. Specialists in cannon, suppliers of food, or blacksmiths that could construct horseshoes rapidly were of special interest to those garrison commanders that made use of a contract army. But Louis XIII's stand, however limited, meant that an old tradition of total reliance on mercenaries had been definitively abandoned, and perhaps most important for our story is the fact that Louis XIII's son reinforced this tradition. By making this change permanent, Louis XIV was able to directly employ large portions of his army during the War of Devolution directly from the French people. The desperate conditions of the day for many meant that Service in the army remained voluntary, but fraud and the more unsavoury impressment practices inevitably resulted once recruits were slow in coming. These French soldiers, and any foreign auxiliaries which accompanied them, were not merely grouped together and led by a supposedly reliable mercenary captain with dubious loyalties. No, instead these soldiers were divided into their regiments, as recruits would apply to a regiment in a given town or village to then enter into the French army, before being swept into the general machinery of the teeming force as a tiny cog within that larger machine. The French soldier from his village would be given appropriate colours to wear, and will cover uniforms in time, and he would then be organised into his unit alongside those of his countrymen. He would be provided with a weapon, training and regular rations, and he would of course be informed of who he reported to as a superior, with the king, of course, at the head of this pyramid. Louis took this process of organising his armies yet further when in 1688 he transformed the Royal Militia Service into one which could supplement the actual armed forces. Alright, 
hope you enjoyed that snippet. So episode three, it looks at the technology of infantry, which is kind of more like the, the kind of bread and butter of what I wanted these episodes to be. Originally, I was going to look at just the technology of armies full stop, but it turned out there was all this background detail, so I decided to go into that as well as the technology of the musket. Now, the musket is really what we look at in this episode, guys. Episode three is kind of all about how the armies used their weapons, the matchlock musket in particular, how it was used, what the kind of pitfalls and dangers were, and why the strategy of using line infantry, where everyone would fire at once, kind of was so important, because odds are, with a weapon... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Like the musket that isn't super accurate or reliable, the more people you have firing this cumbersome weapon, the more likely you are to actually achieve your ends. So let's listen to this snippet now. We begin first with the weaponry of the humble soldier, the line infantryman of the 17th century. Up until virtually the end of the 1600s, when it was replaced by an official ordinance swapping it with the flintlock musket in 1699, the French and their rivals used the matchlock musket. To clarify, since musket can mean a great deal of things, and no doubt conjures in your mind a great number of images, the 17th century musket was a smooth-bore, muzzle-loading shoulder arm. It was powered above all by the connection of the match to the powder, which would snap forward and ignite the powder once the trigger was pulled. The match was kept burning through soaking it in a nitrate solution, not dissimilar to the modern formula which enables cigarettes to remain alight. With the trigger pulled, the science within the barrel began, and the ball was projected out of the barrel up to 250 yards or more, though in reality, muskets were only really accurate to about a quarter of that distance. The appearance and structure of line infantrymen may appear dangerous and wasteful, especially when they got down to business, but that very order was incepted due to the long time it took to reload a musket, sometimes as long as a minute between shots. Added to this was the consideration that, for a wide variety of reasons, muskets could miss fire altogether as often as 50% of the time. It thus made tactical sense to line men up as they prepared to fire, on the understanding that even if one man missed or his gun failed to fire at all, at least his comrade to his left or right had a chance to achieve success. 
All right, so episode four is kind of a different perspective. It looks at the drill, the kind of military drill, the reason why Louis XIV is able to mobilize these men is kind of down to logistics and having like very capable ministers in place. But when it comes down to the actual soldiers and them obeying orders and marching into what appears like a meat grinder on, on, on the surface of it, the reason why they're able to do that is because they've been thoroughly kind of controlled and groomed and almost indoctrinated, you could say, by the military drill, where you were trained literally to the letter in how to obey your officer, what to do in the event of danger, and essentially to kind of ignore the fact that your friends are dying around you and just keep on fighting. Obviously, this, like, it had its limits, but it was very, very effective. And you'll see in the later episodes of our main episodic series exactly how important it was that the kind of professionalism was spread from the officer corps in the European armies down to the soldiery. Whereas in the Ottoman equivalent, you kind of just had the soldiers were all professional, but they didn't really necessarily have a very effective officer corps. Certainly not one as effective as the likes of the Habsburgs, or in this case, the French. So let's have a listen to the nature of the drill, the importance of the professionalism and the training, and how it had an impact on the psyche of the average soldier. In the 17th century, little could be done about the woeful impact of long-range cannon and musket volleys on the human body. For the soldier to endure these experiences, he would have to learn how to not let the terrible nature of the battlefield phase him. This hadn't much to do with instilling certain attitudes when training, as it did emphasising the importance of a well-rehearsed weapons drill, so that the soldier was confident with his weapon. The more confident a soldier was, the better able he would feel to withstand the enemy fire. Yet if he skipped the training that day, or perhaps took notably longer to reload than his comrades, then his unit as a whole would suffer. We're drawn to the Franco-Dutch war and the scenes along the Pyrenees, for example, where inexperienced, mostly militia troops, fought the Spanish in difficult terrain and in small numbers. The reason why the Spanish kept winning in this theatre revolved around the inability of the French militia to withstand the Spanish volleys. Obviously because the whole experience would have been terrifying and these militia were more used to policing their towns than fighting some Spanish soldiers up in the mountains. What this militia routing would have looked like was likely something like this. A few lines expel their fire, but by the time it gets to the third or fourth line, morale is so low and panic is beginning to set in. Your inexperienced comrade then fumbles his weapon and manages to blow himself up while clumsily lighting the matchlock mechanism. This increases the panic. Then the Spanish fire their weapons and your comrades flee from the experience, unwilling to risk their lives when they recognise how hopelessly outmatched they are. Inexperience had as much to do with a lack of morale as it did with a lack of skill, and a lack of morale underlined the fact that these men had been transformed into the unfeeling, killing machines, which France and the rest of Europe required in order to be effective. Only through rigorous training and slight indoctrination could the transformation be brought about. Training was therefore based on obedience and restraint. One's attitude had to be moulded until he did not fear anymore. He had to be conditioned to expect horrific losses and terrible experiences of suffering. How was this accomplished, you may be wondering? Well, the key was in the drill. Alright guys, so the final snippet we have is 
to do with Louis XIV's obsession with security and the importance of the siege for France that went along with that. I mean, we've seen even from our coverage of the Franco-Dutch War and the War of Devolution before that, how Louis XIV really kind of just targeted sieges above all because sieges were seen as the kind of the most advantageous way to push the borders forward. But halfway through the Franco-Dutch War, Louis XIV aided in some large part by Vauban, his kind of siege engineer extraordinaire, he kind of underwent an inner change like within himself about how he viewed the importance of the wars that France was fighting. And by that I mean, rather than a quest for glory, he started to see it as a quest for security. In other words, Louis XIV is not waging a war against the Spanish Netherlands because he wants to take their forts and say, look at me, I'm so great with all these forts. To be blunt, he's taking them. I know this is about as blunt as it gets, but he's taking them because he believes that by taking those forts, they'll increase the border security of France. And the reason why you kind of should be aware of that and the reason why it's so important to trace it back historically is because Louis XIV is acting in such a way because he remembered, not because he was alive, but because these stories were passed down, of what happened in the late 1630s when France was like directly threatened by a Habsburg invasion, which came from, above all, the Spanish Netherlands. So I hope you listen to this last snippet, and then stay tuned for the end. Although our coverage just ended in the late 1670s, in the Franco-Dutch War, and we're not quite at the point where French armies moved to reinforce French security by basically taking over important parts of the map, these events are not far from our narrative. The French policy of occupying lands which appeared to naturally come under the French jurisdiction or seemed geographically linked to that country's border would become known as the Reunions and it was this process of occupying and annexing over the five years from 1679 to 84 that provided the clearest indication of where Louis' ideas of French security lay. This episode won't necessarily have to spoil this incredible period though because we can ascertain from our coverage of the Franco-Dutch War and even the War of Devolution before that, that while Louis, of course, strived for glory, he became fixated upon a, another more important goal approximately halfway through the Franco-Dutch War. That goal was to establish a series of defensive parameters to reinforce his realm's security, what Vauban would deem the Fence of Iron. Vauban had long since urged Louis to make this switch in policy and capture towns or fortresses which would increase French security rather than overextend the French influence. He said in 1673 that The king must think some about creating a fence of iron. I do not like this pell-mell confusion of ours and the enemy's fortresses. That is why, be it by treaties or by a good war, if you believe what I say, monsieur, always preach squaring things off. Not the circle, but the fence. The French historical experience cannot be underestimated here. One must bear in mind how France in the late 1630s, after entering the Thirty Years' War, was invaded by Spain through the Spanish Netherlands, and that the various points of Spanish occupation in Franche Comte, in the pro-Spanish Alsace-Lorraine area, and of course along the Pyrenees, provided a foil to French security and a constant base from which Madrid could snipe at Paris. Believing French security to be in a constant state of flux, Vauban advocated a policy which would anchor the French border, and remove the latent Spanish threat. That such a policy would provide Louis with the opportunity to distinguish his reign with some glory through conquest was a fortunate bonus for the eager son king, 
but to Vauban the end result was what mattered most. Okay, history friends, that right there, you've just listened to five snippets of the different extra episodes that are going to be coming out in the month of July. There'll be another one of these kind of episodes for August, and maybe you're just not really bothered either way to sign up, but maybe this is just going to give you a nice kind of a summary of where we are, a summary of how the kind of extra series progressed, and hey, I'm glad to give it to you, I'm glad to be able to tell you this is what we're doing, and hey... If you want a little bit extra, if you want a little bit more in your life, I really need to stop saying the word extra, but you know what I mean. When Diplomacy Fails has an awful lot to give. It has an awful lot to give listeners, and it has an awful lot to give patrons. So, if you yourself would like to avail of all these additional, see I didn't say extra this time, additional audio goodies, you know where to go. When Diplomacy Fails' Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash... When Diplomacy Fails. I really can't say any more, guys. I hope you enjoyed this teaser for the extra episodes for the month of July, and that you will perhaps consider checking out When Diplomacy Fails' Patreon page. You guys are great. I hope you're having a good summer, and I will be talking to you all very soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a woman-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.